Welcome to Psyched for Psychology, a Nystrom & Associates podcast. Our hosts, Michelle Iverson and Brett Cushing, are both licensed marriage and family therapists at Nystrom & Associates. Each week, they talk about all things mental health and therapy, and you get a chance to dive into specific psychology topics that help promote personal development and wellness. And now, here are your hosts, Michelle and Brett. Hello, and thank you so much for joining us today for our Psych for Psychology podcast. Uh, today in the studio, it's me and Brett, and we are going to be talking about um, some really, just over the next week or two, some topics that I think are just really near and dear for both of us in terms of the types of treatments that um, we specialize in and um, people that we like to work with. Uh, in particular for today, um, Brett's going to be interviewing me a little bit on a topic, again, very near and dear to my heart. Um, this is also where it technically, I think, a part of our holiday series that we're doing as well, too. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, toxic diet culture, which I think is really important and really relates to a lot of the work that I've done in my past with eating disorder treatment. I am so glad we are talking about this because it is that time of year where we do have a lot of stress. Being together with family, we have alluded to that already, that mm -hmm. being together with family can be very stressful, a lot of expectations. Yep. And uh, what those expectations is food and eating. Mm -hmm. And I, there's been countless times I've said, okay, I am not going to eat a lot, and I'm just going to maybe have a little bit, and I'm very intentional. And then when I get there, I think, well, you know, it's the holidays, mm -hmm. and then I regret it afterwards and yeah. avoid the scale for a good two weeks. And so it, it, it is a bit stressful, mm -hmm. and this is highly relevant. Why else should we be talking about this, do you think? Well, I think it's one of the big things that we're going to get more into today is the relevancy of it. Why this topic? Um, I worked in eating disorder treatment for quite a while. I still, this is a... A group of clients I really, really enjoy working with, and this time of year really stresses them out. Um, but it's not even just for people who have eating disorders. Everybody, just like you said, everybody gets a lot more stressed and concerned about things like weight and eating. And because, and that's why we're going to talk about diet culture today, because we are also at the same time getting messages, um, especially right around New Year's, of you are bad this season and now you need to be good, right? Right. And that is really toxic and unhelpful for people. So we're talking about this today because this is a constant theme in working with clients struggling with eating disorders, which by the way, the number of people struggling with their eating, whether it's a, you know, a diagnosed eating disorder or even just what we call disordered eating, where maybe like you're kind of noticing, like I'm falling into these habits that seem to just not be helpful for me. Um, across the board that has worsened during the pandemic because so many things felt out of control in pandemic. Mm. And so a lot of people found control through eating and food. But then even more so, we're continuing to kind of fall um, prey to society pressures around what, you know, body should look like. Um, you might have, if you're a person who, say, like, follows the Kardashians, right? Uh, very much their bodies seem to align with like, this is the trend of what a female body, feminine body should look like. Um, it used to be with curves. And now suddenly, it's, I really hate this term, but 
um, back in the 90s, right? Dieting, it was heroin chic was what was in trend, which is just very, um, very, very skinny, thin bodies. And now you see the Kardashians are kind of leaning towards that. And so that's now what gets talked about. This is the new trend with bodies. That is toxic diet culture at work. Well, I have so many thoughts going through my head as I'm listening to you. I think of one thing that just popped into my mind is I heard this great definition of what success is. Success is accepting yourself for who you Mm -hmm. are. And as I'm listening to you, I'm hearing so much temptation and stress related to comparing ourselves Mm -hmm. and then really not accepting ourselves, but feeling as though I have to be like this in order to be acceptable mm-hmm. and or be good there's a lot of moralization mm, to yeah that as right well too the other thought i had yeah. and maybe you're going to talk about this yeah. and this is what i can relate to is uh there's there's all this pressure this external pressure there's this desire for control and not to mention food mm-hmm. is a great way to self-medicate for stress and mm-hmm. this is a very stressful yep. time of year and I don't know about you, I, I have heard that, I think it's like 50 to 100% somewhere in there, that when we eat food, food mm-hmm. can increase the pleasure center mm-hmm. in the brain by like 50 to 100%. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know about you, but I can sit down and I I know I'm feeling those endorphins be released. Mm-hmm. And I'm stressed and tired. I come home. I just want to relax. And food is the way I can relax. Yeah. So a lot of reasons for getting into disordered mm-hmm. eating. So when we think about eating disorders, when somebody gets diagnosed because it has gotten that bad for a person, it's far more than I think people realize. We were talking about 28 million people in the United States um, are affected by this. It's generally starting in like childhood and adolescence. And here's where the scary stats really come in. So when we think about all sorts of mental health issues, eating disorders are the ones with the highest rates of death that we see. Hmm. Um, Young people ages 15 to 24 with anorexia, they have 10 times the risk of dying compared to same age peers. So, and I really want to kind of encourage people to think about this too. So when we have males, um, men, boys, um, uh, mask clients representing 25% of those people with anorexia, they are at an even higher risk of dying in part because they are often diagnosed later because so many people assume, oh, if you're male, if you're masked, you don't have an eating disorder. And we have really high eating disorder rates in the LGBTQ community, um, in particular highest among trans individuals, hmm. uh, trans femme, trans mask, often because, again, society pressure, you need to look, look a certain way if sure. you identify that way. Eating disorders also have the highest rates of suicidal ideation because we are dealing with often anxiety, depression, substance use, trauma in this population, and now you've got physical health concerns like starvation, even for people who look and feel deceptively well, um, even with normal EKGs, measuring how your heart's doing, they can still potentially have cardiac irregularities, variations with like their pulse and their blood pressure that can all put somebody at risk for sudden death. Um, anorexia in particular, we're talking about a mortality rate of 10%. 10%. Oftentimes because of physical issues, it's now causing to their health. But then one in five of those is by suicide. 
So why do I talk about that when we're talking about diet culture? The best known environmental contributor, like there's some genetic contributors, but Mm -hmm. the best known environmental one to why somebody would get an eating disorder and now be at risk of all of those things is our idealization as a culture, as a society of thinness and dieting. This is a stat that makes me cry. And I'm sorry if this causes any listeners to cry too, but I think it's really important to hear. By the age of six, girls in particular start to express concerns about their own weight or shape. 40 to 60% of our elementary school kids, like six to 12 year olds, are concerned about their weight or becoming too fat and that endures throughout their life. That's just shocking to see how prevalent this is. Mm -hmm. And I think it's good for us as men to understand this because we don't have this pressure. Mm -hmm. And when I listen to this, I think of during the holidays, there is this, oh, come on, just, you know, have a little bit more, have seconds, make make your grandma feel better. And Mm -hmm. there is all of this, but there's no sense of awareness or sensitivity that so this really may be difficult. This might be really a stressful time. Mm-hmm. And not that we have to be hyper-vigilant, but we can't stick our head in the sand either. You know, it's, right. For instance, if you have a relative who comes and you know uh, maybe he or she's been dealing with alcoholism, maybe you don't have alcohol or maybe you're just sensitive to that and maybe not broach that topic or, hey, do you want a drink? Uh, and But we don't really think about that with mm-hmm. food because... Food is so we all celebrated. Eat. Well, we have to eat. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's a necessity, and it's so celebrated. And we celebrate it. This yeah, time, I was yeah. I was on Facebook the other night, and I saw all these videos on just food mm-hmm. and how it's prepared, and mm-hmm. and just these people getting over the moon mm-hmm. about a piece of meat and it being seasoned right, and it's like, wow, this is like. And then think of the cognitive dissonance in that. We push, push, push food and celebration, and then you're not the right weight or shape. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, there's kind of a no way out mm-hmm. for people. It's like this double bind. So mm-hmm. this is, I think, helpful so far already just because yeah. it's building, at least for me, a greater sense of awareness. And I grew up in a predominantly male family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... A lot of testosterone there, and we it's just not even on the radar. Mm-hmm. But becoming aware, mm-hmm. wow, and, and it's staggering and sobering and, and sad, too. And I wanted to talk just a little bit about eating disorders and some of the myths around that, too, um, largely because we haven't had a chance to talk about this on the podcast yet. Um, and there's a lot of things that people assume. So big thing, right? We cannot assume anything about who has an eating disorder and who doesn't. There's a lot of assumptions about who gets this type of illness, right? Mm -hmm. So the big assumptions we tend to get, you're young, you're thin, you're white, you're privileged, and you're a girl. But you really can't assume anything because this occurs across all ages, all demographics, ethnicities, body types. And now we've got a large new study showing that disordered eating is equally impacting um, male clients, female clients, um, again, whichever way you identify, but females, again, more likely to seek treatment and get diagnosed because of that stigma and that assumption. 
And we're talking about a wide range of disorders. Again, most people tend to think, okay, anorexia, restriction, bulimia, binging and purging. Um, we're not going to go into full criteria on everything today, but I just want everybody to be aware. Um, people don't just experience restriction or purging. We're talking about a binge eating disorder that people can have, um, which is just the binge eating aspect, although can still include some compensation for that. So people who cycle through dieting over and over and over again, but then sometimes they diet and they restrict and then that increases their tendency to binge again yeah. and kind of get some stuck in this really, really kind of nasty cycle. Um, and then again, that also deals with a lot of body image concerns. Um, we also have a condition called ARFID. It's avoidant restrictive feeding or intake disorder. There are no body image concerns at all, but you've got a client who's really struggling to eat because they're very averse to certain textures. They've got fears of um, food, like if I were to eat this, this might cause me to be sick, um, to throw up. Um, they've got a particular fear or phobia attached to that food. Um, these are often clients too, where they got told you're just a picky eater. And that kind of got dismissed when they were a kid, but then we're finding, we're evaluating them. We're, we're saying, no, this is actually a much bigger problem than that. Um, there is a condition called OSFED, this other specified eating disorder. It can be a little bit of a catch-all. But again, this is where we see things like atypical anorexia. So somebody who has all of those signs and symptoms of anorexia, but their weight is considered normal or maybe even overweight. And so oftentimes they come into treatment saying, I can't possibly have that because I don't look like I should be anorexic, which isn't true. Hmm. And then um, we also have some unofficial diagnoses that aren't in the DSM, but we still very much see and treat. Things like orthorexia, somebody who's overly obsessive and compulsive with exercise or healthy and clean eating, um, and it's creating the same mental health concerns, again, even if it doesn't change what their weight is. And then finally, we have something that is um, getting more and more well-known, something called diabulimia where we've got somebody with type 1 diabetes who might be restricting their insulin to lose weight. Mm. They may or may not do that with food, but definitely they do it with their insulin. But now that's putting them at risk of a very dangerous, life-threatening condition called DKA. It's something that will put somebody in the hospital and somebody, something that somebody could die from very easily. So that's just to say, we cannot look at somebody, we cannot see somebody's weight, we cannot assume anything about whether or not they might have that eating disorder. We really need clinicians that are trained really well in eating disorders and understanding them and really looking deeply into those habits, into what's, uh, you know, and how those habits are affecting them mentally and emotionally to help to actually make that diagnosis. And I'm glad you made the distinction, not just therapists, yes. therapists who are trained in this, mm -hmm. who can specialize in this, because this is not my area, yeah. and I've not really been trained. I've had a little bit of exposure to this mm -hmm. in grad school. I worked at a psych mm -hmm. hospital, and I remember part of it, we had these teenage girls who were going through some eating disorders. This mm -hmm. was back in the 90s, so I'm dating myself here, but... It was fascinating to find out that these women, these gals, as they were in training there, they were uh, going through the kind of this training process of rethinking. And I was thinking to myself, wow, I know very little about what's going on. And, and the mindset 
they would write draw pictures of themselves and they were dangerously mm-hmm. thin mm-hmm. and they would draw pictures like big circles yeah. uh, on their body and their head and their legs and you're thinking well this is light years apart mm-hmm. from how they really are versus how they see each other or how they see themselves mm-hmm. and can you talk a little bit about like the how this affects their thinking at all? And do you know anything yeah. about that? Yeah. Oh, we could go into a long, long conversation. I, that could be another hour podcast, I think. Um, but yeah, what we kind of see is that that engagement in what initially tends to start with dieting, um, turning into disordered eating and then eating disorders. Mm. Um, we tend to see that this is creating changes in the brain. Um, we are seeing, um, there's actually been um, some studies, there's a study at the U of M um, that really looked at starvation's effects on the body. And as a person starves, um, they start to, even if they never had any of that, you know, smaller disordered eating behavior before, they now develop a full-blown de- eating disorder and those suicidal thoughts and all these mental health concerns that they never had before the study. But when they were put onto the starvation plan, which they did in the study, which would be unethical now, this happened a long time ago, nobody would do this today. Um, but they put them onto the semi-starvation plan and we saw what we now see in eating disorders and it was having a profound impact and changing um, their brain and their body. And they didn't recover from that until we could refeed them and get them back to eating the way that they were before the study started. Right. It, it seems so simple mm-hmm. for somebody on the outside who doesn't understand to suggest, you know, almost demand, like, well, just eat. Right. But just eat more. It's going to be far more complicated than that, of course. Right. Um, treatment, um, really, we want to look at really kind of um, approaching this very holistically with our clients. Um, it's a big push, too, in helping primary care doctors to really understand the complexity of this, because um, sometimes primary care doctors, that's the first person to catch that somebody might be struggling with this right. when they come in for a checkup. And to know, too, it, we can't say just eat because this is rooted in much more complex emotions and feelings that tend to be need to be worked through in therapy. But that's why we tend to want to have like a therapy, a dietitian. It's one of the reasons why we have wonderful dietitians here at Nystrom um, who work with clients with eating disorders, too, to help to support them with um, overcoming some of those barriers to be able to try to eat if they're really struggling with restriction. Well, it is complex. It's multifaceted. There is this double bind in our culture where we're getting mixed messages. Mm -hmm. And that's not only as it relates to eating disorders, but uh, dieting. And Mm -hmm. uh, tell us about dieting. What's the problem with dieting? So when we look at, there was a large study done of 14 and 15 year olds um, dieting was the most important predictor of them developing an eating disorder. Um, the kids who were dieting, what would the, what they considered moderately, were five times more likely to develop ones. Those who did extreme restriction were 18 times more likely to develop that than kids that did not diet. Um, and again, large percentage girls and boys. In that study, they were looking at about 62% of teenage girls doing this. And um, 29% of teenage boys trying to lose weight. Mm. Um, Pre-pandemic, we saw over a half of teenage girls, nearly a third of teenage boys, um, using unhealthy weight control behaviors. They were skipping meals, 
fasting, smoking cigarettes, vomiting, and abusing laxatives. And what we find in the research time and time and time again, diets do not work. 95% of all dieters will regain their lost weight in one to five years. Multiple studies have been finding that dieting was actually associated with greater weight gain and increased rates of binge eating in both boys and girls. And 80% of weight loss program participants reported coping with weight stigma by just eating more food. And yet we spend as Americans $60 billion on dieting and diet products every single year. Well, I can I, I can really identify with that that, that coping with weight stigma. Mm-hmm. I, I, I nowhere kind of close to my prime, you know. I still see myself about twenty years younger than I actually am, and so I always want to get back to where I was. And then because I I can't, mm-hmm. um, well, I know what to do to deal with that that shame, that mm-hmm. sense of frustration. I know what makes that go away. Mm-hmm. I can just eat more because right. I feel better right. and then I feel worse. So it's a great way to self-medicate and, and specifically that shame that we feel. So we ask, where does that shame come from? A big part of it is this idea of like, we're, you hear this all the time, we're in an obesity epidemic, mm-hmm. right? And so we're all looking for, well... That's scary, right? Like, I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want to be a part of that. Like, so we're looking for quick fixes. Well, what are we going to look for for a quick fix? Um, Any of these diet programs and methods and things being, you Mm -hmm. know, kind of sold to us. Um, And it's reinforcing, yeah, many people do struggle with weight, but the idea of the that quick, easy fix or even moralization, right, that you as a person or your weight or your shape is either good or bad, that keeps us entrenched in this toxic diet culture. And we are throwing away all of our money hmm. just to increase our own risk of getting an eating disorder. Wow, this is a bit discouraging when we think about this because I, I, I think of how we just are setting ourselves up and our culture is setting ourselves up. I think of, you know, we have Thanksgiving coming up here yeah. pretty soon from when we're recording today and then you have Christmas and it's kind of the same dynamic, at least for me. You know, everybody eats way too much and you're kind of like, you always have those same conversations yeah. at the dinner table. You know, whew, I should really stop. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, those, <laughs> those potatoes are amazing. So yeah, I'll take some more. And, and everyone's sort of encouraging it. Like, oh, yeah, have some more. Aren't they great? And then, mm-hmm. and then everyone just sits around and sort of celebrates. Like, wow, that was an amazing meal. I am stuffed. And then, like, we go home that day or the next yeah. morning and we regret it. And then we repeat it. And at the same time, too, it's one day a year, right? If it's not happening all the time... It's okay if it's one day a year. So and I shouldn't do, beat myself up We should not this? beat ourselves up over this. And at the same time, I'm actually going to talk about this in a little bit too. It's, it's a great reinforcement for something called intuitive eating. It's like one of the ways we can push back against this diet culture. Um, and I think one thing that helps us is about, I mean, changing culture is hard. Mm. And we're not just talking about changing culture of like, 
a family or even like a company. We're talking about changing the culture of the entire United States. <laughs> so that is a big, big ask. Um, but what we can all do is each one of us kind of learning a little bit more, kind of questioning questioning that culture, right? Pushing back on that culture for ourselves, for the people we know and care about, or even as therapists, when we've got clients that are coming in that are really entrenched in, this is the truth. I need to believe this. Starting to like understand and kind of question that a little bit more. And can I just add here too, respect other people's boundaries as they try to do that. Yeah. And, and accept it. Like, okay, yeah, that's cool. I I don't have to take it personally. Mm -hmm. If, you're not going to have more of the turkey that I made. Right. And I can totally respect that. It amazes me how people push this so much mm-hmm. around the holidays. Like, yep. oh, have what? And it could even be drinking. Have another drink or have some more of this. And uh, so there is this pressure. And I think it is important that we accept or we're sensitive and we respect each other's boundaries in these areas. Yeah. So one of the things, too, that I like to work with a lot of clients on, especially ones that are concerned about their weight, um, is even just talking about, like, the BMI itself. Um, so one thing, like, we we all kind of know about BMI, like, when we go to the doctor, oh, okay, I like my height and weight, but it's supposed to put me in a category. Mm-hmm. Either I'm underweight, I'm, quote, normal, overweight, obese, right? But a lot of people don't understand where did that even come from. Why is that the gold standard of, like, trying to tell us, how healthy or unhealthy we might be. Um, did you know, actually, millions of people in one night in 1998 went from being normal to overweight and from overweight to obese on that scale? In one night. Tell me more. Yeah. I'm intrigued. Yeah. So the, the BMI itself is controversial. It was created 200 years ago by a mathematician, not a doctor. And he was really looking for like a very oversimplistic and ultimately a flawed um, attempt at he was just trying to average human bodies, just trying to get an idea for what's average. And so that was all that was for. It was never really used until life insurance companies started using it in around the 20th century because they were trying to determine how much should I charge somebody for their life insurance policy, right? So they started putting people into categories, but again, not based off of anything medical, health-related, how much should I charge you for life insurance? And from there, it started to creep over into health insurance, which started to creep over into medical offices. Um, but it really started to gain traction in like the 80s and 90s um, when pharmaceutical companies funded an obesity task force. Um, and in turn, they kind of convinced the NIH and the WHO to lower that bar for BMI cutoffs. So making millions of people who were over-labeled as like overweight and obese when they weren't that before. So if you were previously a normal, now suddenly you're overweight. If you're previously overweight, you're now obese. Like it shifted that standards for millions and millions of people. And really it shifted not based on, on medical science. I was going to say, who do you think gains from that shift? Right. Yeah. I see the if, manipulation, the, the monetization yeah. of this. It has really nothing to do with medical science, but and making if you're, money. And if you're a pharmaceutical company and you sell weight loss medication, guess how many more people Absolutely. are going to qualify? Yeah. So I'm healthy. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it's one of the things why so many people, they base that idea of healthy off of BMI. And mm-hmm. I think it's well worth looking at things like that and questioning that. It's one thing to say, like, work with your doctor on, like, 
how how's my blood pressure like how are my blood sugars like looking at those things and using that as a great indicator of like how's my health doing and do I want to make changes to help improve that that's one thing but it's an entirely different thing and so many even kids when kids start learning about BMIs they already start to think that is how I know whether right I'm good or bad or whether I'm healthy or not and to really start to question that even just like kind of knowing things like the fact that obesity that was not even considered an official disease until 2013 um, the AMA medical uh, American Medical Association made that classification at that time but it was against the advice of their own committee their own committee felt that it should not be considered a disease because the, the flaws in the use of BMI to determine it and the dif- difficulty in defining it. Um, in reality, people's weight and their health, it is a far more complex issue than we could ever use a very simplistic scale from a mathematician 200 years ago to try to define that. Well, it's, it's very interesting that it's very complex to define our health as opposed to what we're being told. It's, mm-hmm. it's very complex to define my own sense of self too. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it based upon what other people are, are telling, the images that I'm seeing in my culture? In a similar way, even what, what in, in medical science, when we hear about BMI, it, does that tell me how I'm doing? It, it's, mm-hmm. We check these gauges. It's mm-hmm. almost like you're driving a car and when you, some people, it's like, hey, you know, you're, uh, you're driving with somebody and say, hey, your, your fuel gauge says you're empty. Oh, no, that just doesn't work. Uh, you know, <laughs> but, you know, you've had maybe cars like that where the gauges aren't really accurate. And we sort of know that yeah. with, our, with our car. But we have these gauges, uh, whether it comes from our culture or whether it comes from uh, the medical community with BMI, that sort of tell us this is what's good and this is what's healthy, but we don't realize mm-hmm. it's it's a false gauge. Right. Right. So what do we do? What do we do with all this? I know this sounds like a lot of kind of down information, but at the same time, it's about, for one, to be, it's developing that awareness of that pressure that culture puts on us. Um, even more so, again, at this time of year, but to also be able to say, I don't need to buy into that. When we start getting all of the um, eat, eat, eat during the holidays, and then in particular in January, when we're start, we're going to get slammed with all the buy our diet program, buy our gym membership, <laughs> like we're going to start getting hit with all those ads to be able to say, I can turn that off. Mm-hmm. I don't have to listen to that. I can start to break down that stigma and I can start to, for myself and others, call out that is diet culture and that is toxic. Um, to be able to say, like, get, we're trying to go go away and get away from things like even the fact of there being good or bad foods. Every single type of food, um, especially with dietitians. That's why I love working with dietitians. They're like, we can break that down into components. Every single component is a component your body's going to need. We might work on some balance with that, but there is no good component or bad component. Your body literally needs every single one in order to function, right? Even fats. Fat is not, like, fats that we take in, that is not a bad word. Mm-hmm. I, that that should be banned from being a bad word. It is, <laughs> it, it is one of those things where we need those mm-hmm. for our body to survive. 
This reminds me of things we've talked about, kind of a constant theme we seem to come back to in all of our podcasts, it seems. We need to move away from the extremes, the, mm-hmm. the dichotomous all-or-nothing approach and yes. uh, how we understand ourselves, how we approach food. We need to have a, a balance, a dialectical balance is what I'm hearing mm-hmm. you say, and really move away from the S-word, you know, that the shoulds. I mm-hmm. should look like this. I shouldn't mm-hmm. be eating. And that's how we can find that balance, not just in, in how we live, but in how we feel, too. Mm-hmm. We want to normalize bodies of every size. We want to stop determining health by BMI and you really using things on those actual measurable indicators that you can work with your doctor on, right? Again, blood pressure, labs, blood sugars, that is going to help you to understand your health better. We want to catch and challenge biases, assumptions about the health of other people or for yourself. And if you're looking for more information, um, We have some great resources and articles on our website. I really encourage all of the statistics that I have in the podcast today can all be found on NEDA's website. It's N-E-D-A, the National Eating Disorder Association. Um, And there's a really wonderful book that I always recommend for clients is called Anti-Diet. It was written by a registered dietitian. Her name is Christy Harrison, um, and it's an incredibly wonderful book to learn more about this toxic diet culture and how to break that down. This is incredibly helpful and enlightening. I'm so glad we chose this topic and that you've had this experience, Michelle, to be able to share with us. It's a wealth of information. I think that is, is freeing in many ways for us. I'm also thinking there might be a parent listening who's asking, how do I know? What do I look for with my teenage daughter uh, in particular? And it could be a boy, too. But how do I know and and what do I look for? I know we're kind of running up against the clock, but can can you help us a little bit with that? I think the best thing would be, just with our short time, is I would really encourage people to go to Nita's website. They have a bunch of wonderful information, packets, like guidelines for parents on not only what to look for, but also um, what to say, like how to talk to my kid about this if I'm concerned about them. They've got self-screening tools. Um, they've got ways to find providers. Uh, Nystrom, we've got a bunch of wonderful providers, including myself, that treat this. Mm-hmm. And even, again, even if you're concerned, like, hey, I do think my kid or myself has is having concerns with self-esteem, body image, maybe an actual eating disorder or that slightly disordered eating behavior, mm-hmm. come in and talk, right? We are going to be more than happy to help to evaluate it further and to be able to help and support you um, with this. Well, I'm happy that you were able to address this topic. And thank you, Michelle. Mm-hmm. I really want to underscore again, that's NEDA, N-E-D-A is the site you can go to for more information on all these statistics. You can also call Nystrom. We'd be happy to find a clinician who is specifically trained Mm -hmm. in this area. And even if you don't go to Nystrom, find some help for yourself or your loved one. And uh, there is hope. There There is is a lot of hope. It's it's a lot of work, but with the right trained people and the right attitude, certainly can overcome this. Absolutely. And save a lot of lives in the meantime, too. Well, we thank you all for joining us again on Psych for Psychology. We'll look forward to meeting again in the near future.
Thank you. Thank you as always for listening and please be sure to leave us a review. While this podcast can't be a replacement for therapy, we hope you enjoyed our discussion today and join us again next time. Nice German Associates is always available to those who are struggling. If you find yourself in need of support and help, please check us out at nystromcounseling.com.